Shalom, Salam, and welcome to the History of the Land of Israel podcast. I am Shail Ben Ephraim, and I welcome you to the one podcast with the guts to survey the most provocative historical narrative in the world. Episode 32, The Rise of Jerusalem and Shechem. The Judean mountains and the towns of Jerusalem and Shechem are the most likely centers for the rise of the Israelite culture. And therefore, the history of these towns is of particular interest to historians of Judaism and of the land of Israel. So over the next few episodes, we will focus on how and why that area became the home of this culture. Israel Finkelstein and Neil Asher Silberman wrote, quote, Judah's distinctive society was determined in large measure by its remote geographical position, unpredictable rainfall, and rugged terrain. Now, while the area is central to those who are interested in Judaism, it was fairly peripheral to the Egyptian system of the time, which, politically speaking, was what mattered. For example, Shechem is only mentioned once in the Amarna letters by anyone but its ruler, or suspected ruler. We'll talk about that a bit. And that stands in fierce contrast to all those Lebanese cities that we talked about, and they were mentioned dozens of times. The reason for this was simple. Trade routes from Egypt went in two directions. They either went northward on the coast, the coast of the Mediterranean, to Lebanon, and then on to Anatolia, or they went east through Jordan towards Babylon. The mountains in the center, which were difficult to traverse, were generally ignored and left to their own devices. So paradoxically, its lack of importance for the pharaohs is the secret to its later role. The lack of an oppressive colonial presence meant that the culture there could develop autonomously. So there was more of a sort of authentic Canaanite culture developing there with less of an external influence. Not that you could avoid Egyptian influence altogether, but there was definitely less of it. Now, the mentions of Shechem in the Amarna letters, few as they are, give us some useful information. They tell us Shechem was a centralized land under a king, a man named Labayu. And though you might imagine his kingdom as a small mountain kingdom, according to correspondence from the king of Jerusalem, it stretched from the Jezreel Valley in the south to the plains near the coast. Archaeologist Aharoni noted the size of this kingdom in comparison to others in Canaan. This is what he wrote, quote, The territory controlled by Labayu, king of Shechem, was vast, in contrast to the small Canaanite principalities about that area. It had the city of Shechem as its capital, and this principality was much larger than the ones on the coast, encompassing a number of towns and a more varied population than most. So how did this kingdom maintain its independence? Well, there's two reasons for this that are mutually reinforcing. First and foremost, Egypt could maintain its supply lines and trade routes regardless of the existence of Shechem. So, there was a certain amount of benevolent neglect by the colonial forces. They never seemed to have made it their mission, that we know of at least, to destroy Labayu and his kingdom of Shechem. Second, it appears that Labayu and other members of his house were very crafty operators. In the previous episode, we saw how Abdi Ashirta and his son Aziru, the two Apiru leaders, often outsmarted and outmaneuvered the Egyptians. Well, the house of Labayu is like the central Judean version of that. They handled a good deal of their maneuvering also with the assistance of the local Apiru, the nomads, the same ethnic group 
that we saw caused the Egyptians so many problems in Lebanon. And the connection between the two is interesting. Like his Apiru equivalents up north, Labayu seems to have held a post within the Egyptian colonial government, while using it to pursue his personal and tribal in- uh, interests. Indeed, there's evidence that, just like Abdi Ashirta, the king of Shechem held the role of Hazanu, that is, to remind you, a local commander in charge of protecting Egyptian interests in a particular region. As we have seen, that was often given in tribute to local power brokers who were difficult to control and often not reliable individuals who towed the Egyptian line, like they did their own thing, and this case is no exception. However, unlike the Apiru leaders we dealt with in the previous episode, Labayu was a blue blood through and through. In his correspondence, he refers to his family's lineage and how they served the pharaoh in the past. What he mentions is recent and specific enough to ring very true. A lot of kings have sort of a legendary past that they go back to Hammurabi or whatever. And in those cases, you know that their lineage is probably dicey. In this case, it was very specific. So Labaya was the product of a royal house and expected his kin to continue to rule Shechem in the future. He also mentions that his father and grandfather had served Egypt loyally. However, as we know, the loyalty of local leaders to Egypt is always highly suspect. We've seen that in the Amarna letters before. We'll see it again. They tried to maneuver matters to their advantage at the best of times and were not above outright betrayal in the worst of times. We know he likely filled the role of Hazanu because he twice mentioned the commanders above him in letters to the pharaoh. He mentioned the role of the high commissioner above him, the highest local uh, colonial official that Hazanu would answer to. So, in the Amarna letters, we're introduced to Labayu, the king of Shechem, when he faced a rebellion within his territory and took punitive damages against the people who had done him wrong. The perpetrators had been individuals who had sworn fealty to Egypt. And that's not a surprising fact, since it seems that everybody who was a mover and shaker had some link or other to the colonial structure. And, as we said, used it for their own purposes. The offended party had complained that Labayu had done them wrong. Not surprisingly, the king of Shechem objected to this and wrote, quote, He has slandered me. Moreover, when an ant is struck, does it not fight back and bite the hand of the man who struck it? How can I show deference at this time? And then another city of mine is stolen, end quote. And that seems to be a question that is always relevant in the dog-eat-dog world of the Middle East. If I allow an affront to happen to me, how many other people will take advantage of my weakness? But Labayu continues. On the other hand, if you also order, I will fall down beneath them so they can strike you, I will do it. I will guard the men that seize the city, and my God, they are the despoilers of my father, but I will guard them, end quote. And he's laying it on a bit thick, saying that he's willing to die for the Pharaoh and willing to aid his own enemies. But of course, we know that nothing is further for the truth. Now, some letters from one Birdia, the king of Megiddo, may explain who was complaining about the king of Shechem and why. The king of Megiddo was clearly involved in a deep rivalry with Labayu. We're introduced to him when he tries to bribe the pharaoh, probably Amenhotep III, by the way, into helping him against the king of Shechem. Here's the relevant text. Quote, I hear it with, give my king what he requested, 30 oxen, sheep, and goats, 
end quote. Here the text becomes illegible. But I bet there's plenty more goodies in the form of livestock for the Pharaoh. Beardia then concludes, quote, I am at war. So while we don't have the complete text, the message is clear. Take all my livestock and help a brother out. In the following message to the Pharaoh, Beardia writes, quote, I am indeed guarding Megiddo, the city of the king, both day and night. By day, I guard it from the fields on chariots, and by night, I guard it from the walls. And as the warning of the Apiru in the land is severe, may the king, my lord, take cognizance of the land, end quote. Now, I have to say, by ancient Canaanite standards, Beardia is definitely understated. Take cognizance of the land? Where are the dramatic pleas that we're used to? It's all very subtle and very non-Canaanite. But we also learn an exciting tidbit on how these small city-states manage their defenses. They use chariot-led patrols by day and retreated into the city at night. Finally, we learn that Labayu and Shechem had been working together with the Apiru against Megiddo, or at least that's the claim. But the Egyptians did not send help to Megiddo, and this is not surprising. If there's one theme that runs through the Amarna letters, it's Egyptian impotence. Now, this was likely a bit before Akhenaten split Egypt with his intense religious reforms, which we mentioned in the past, but they were already weakening in the region. This was not the era of Thutmose III, when Egypt strode Canaan like Colossus. Well, Egypt was certainly mighty during Amenhotep III's time, and perhaps internally was even mightier. It wasn't as active on foreign policy and nowhere near as interested in Canaan and the region. In fact, it appears that Amenhotep III withdrew troops from the area. We know this from the next tablet that Birdia wrote. Here goes, quote, Since the return to Egypt of the archers, Labayu has waged war against me. Thus we cannot do the plucking and harvesting and go outside the city gate because of Labayu. When he learned the archers were not coming out, he immediately determined to take Megiddo. May the king save his city lest Labayu seize it. Look, Labayu has no other purpose. He seeks simply the seizure of Megiddo. What happened next? This is where things get interesting. The pharaoh appears to have ordered the king of Megiddo to take Labayu hostage and send him to Egypt. But it didn't work out. Birdaya, the king of Megiddo, explained that his horse got injured, so he couldn't make it to the kidnapping at the allotted time. Bummer. Then a friend of his got Labayu, but the crafty king of Shem bribed him and got free. So an embarrassed Birdia concluded, quote, it was Surata who let him go, not me, then may the king my lord know, end quote. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not buying a word of that half-assed story. So, we don't know if Labayu was aware that the pharaoh tried to kidnap him, but my guess is he was. Either way, he wrote an indignant letter to the king of Egypt, and here's a quote from it. To the king, my lord, and my son, thus Labayu, your servant, and the dirt on which you tread, I fall abject at the feet of my lord seven times and seven times. I have obeyed the orders that my lord, my king, wrote to me on that tablet. End quote. Okay, that's not the indignant part. Here's the indignant part. Quote, I am a servant of my king, like my father and grandfather, a servant of my king from long, long ago. I am not a rebel and not a delinquent in duty. 
here is my delinquency, and here is my act of rebellion. When I entered Gazru, I said, The king treats us kindly. No, there is indeed no purpose for me except the service of the king, and whatever the king orders, I obey. May the king keep me in charge of my commissioner to guard the city of my king, end quote. We learn a few things from this communication. First, that Labayu is a very dramatic, passive-aggressive suck-up. And if you have heard any of my other episodes using the Amarna letters, you know this is par for the course in these days. The diplomatic system was one where the pharaoh was treated as superior to everybody else. It was what it was. Second, we learned that the pharaoh had accused Labayu of being a traitor and delinquent in duty. We know that Labayu defended himself against the charges because of this passive aggressiveness. And third, we learned that Labayu was concerned that Pharaoh would remove him from his role as Hazanu. In another letter, we learned why Labayu was so concerned. I'll spare you the obsequious opening of the missive. They're all pretty much the same anyway. I will also not recount how Labayu once again explained that he is neither a traitor nor delinquent, because we have heard that before. Dude, get some new material. But here is where it gets interesting. And here's a quote. I have not held back my payments or tribute. I have not held back anything demanded by my commissioner. He denounces me unjustly. End quote. Okay, so now we know his direct superior was accusing Labayu of skimming tribute off the top. Aside from attacking allies of the Egyptian crown, I'm not sure which is worse, but together, not a picture that would make the Egyptian king happy. No wonder he wanted to kidnap Labayu. We also learn another item of great interest. As the letter continues, quote, Moreover, the king wrote for my son. I now know that my son was consorting with the Apiru. I herewith hand him over. Moreover, if the king wrote for my wife, how can I hold her back? What if the king wrote to me, put a bronze dagger to your heart and die? How could I not execute the king's order? End quote. How indeed. So, now we can see that Labayu conspired with the fierce nomadic people known as the Apiru against Egyptian control. It also seems like he might be trying to get rid of his wife, but uh, that's beside the point. And do we really believe that his son was working with the Apiru behind Labayu's back? I don't. Either way, he handed his son over to the Egyptians without much hesitation, probably happy that his son was going to Egypt and not him, as in accordance with the kidnapping plan that had been foiled. Like all great historical characters, and everyone else, Labayu passed away. We're not sure how exactly, but my guess is he wasn't murdered, because that would have been mentioned elsewhere. Labayu was mentioned posthumously in several letters, and that fact is not mentioned. But have no fear, the Amarna letters also include those of Mutbalu, one of the two sons of Labayu that we've already mentioned. Interestingly, in the letters from him, unlike his father, he refers to himself as the king of Pella. Pella is a city in what is today Jordan, just across the Jordan River from the Jezreel Valley. And that raises some questions about where Labayu's power base had been. Is he a Jordanian prince who expanded into the Judean mountains? Or was he a Judean prince who expanded into Jordan? The evidence is inconclusive, but it's interesting. One of the awesome things about the Amarna letters is that the material on which they are written also provides us with clues. So it's not just the words on it. These are tablets carved in clay, and you took clay from wherever you were and carved the tablets in them. But every region has unique clay, so you can perform petrographic analysis on them. 
What's that? It's apparently, I didn't know this, a branch of research that focuses on the detailed descriptions of rocks, including an analysis of the mineral content and textural relationships within the stone. Now, according to analysis there, performed by Goran, Finkelstein, and Naaman, the clay used in these tablets was primarily found in the Jerusalem area. But to make matters more complicated, that only applies to a few of the tablets written by Mutbalu and Labayu. Others would seem to derive from materials found in the Jezreel Valley, and that would be more consistent with the location in Pella, since that's right across the river. Either way, we learn from this that the House of Labayu had a real empire by the standards of Canaanite kingdoms in the Egyptian era. So the center of activity for both Labayu and Mutbalu, and the whole kingdom that they ran, was the Jezreel Valley. All the cities the letter mentioned that were conquered by them were located in and around the valley. And that also was the agricultural center of the country at the time, which is one of the issues that put them at odds with the pharaoh and his allies. So in letter 250 of the Amarna letters, the sons of Labayu claimed to have, quote, cultivated the lands of the king, end quote, in Gina, the ancient name for the Jezreel Valley. That means the kingdom managed to get the rights to protect the significant agricultural hub of the Egyptian empire in Canaan, or at least part of it. But of course, their enemies didn't see it that way. They certainly didn't think they had a right to do that. In a letter to the pharaoh, Balur, a warlord also of the area of the Jezreel Valley, accused the sons of Labayu of shaking him down and having nefarious purposes to undermine the Egyptian crown. See, the sons of Labayu demanded that Balur join them in their understandable urge to avenge their fallen father. But he wasn't into it. So Balur wrote the following letter to Pharaoh. He said, quote, The sons of Labayu keep talking to me like this, saying, Wage war against the people of Gina for killing our father. And if you do not wage war, we will be your enemies. And I have answered the two of them, May the God of the king, my lord, preserve me from making war against the people of Gina, who are the servants of the king. End quote. He then accuses the sons of Labayu of being part of a line of usurpers working against the interests of Egypt. Explained that the sons had told him, quote, Wage war against the king, our lord, as our father did when he attacked Sunama, Burkwana, and Harabu, and deported the evil ones who were loyal to the king. End quote. Instead of fighting with the sons of Labayu, Balur wanted the Egyptians to gather support for him from another local chieftain. He said, quote, Tell him you will march against the sons of Labayu, or you will be considered a rebel against the king. End quote. If you read between the lines of this missive, you can tell that Labayu and Balur had a good relationship in the past, or at least were not enemies. But Balur seems to have disliked the sons, or felt they were less powerful, and either way was unwilling to cooperate with them. So what we see here is not dissimilar to the Apiru politics we discussed in the last episode. Labayu and his sons were trying to create an independent power base in the rich and fertile areas of the Jezreel Valley. They spoke the language of serving Egypt, while destroying the system of protectorates in the site that was based on fiefdoms paying tribute to the pharaoh. No wonder the pharaoh didn't like them and wanted to kidnap their father. One thing that's fascinating about Labayu and his sons is how often they appear in other Amarna letters, even ones that aren't necessarily about them. 
They're cited in the notes of several leaders, not even uh, only by leaders from the area, but even ones outside the immediate sphere of influence. Now, at first, researchers thought this meant they had a vast empire spanning all of Canaan. But as we said, it was a big empire, not that big. But close analysis of these letters shows that something else is at work here. It appears that Labayu and his sons had double-crossed so many people that even in the cutthroat world of Amarna-era Canaan, they developed a reputation for being particularly untrustworthy. It's kind of like the Medicis had a reputation like that in the Renaissance era. So, when a local king wanted to accuse someone of being a traitor, they would compare them to that family. So, for example, one king in another area says his enemy's actions are, quote, like the deeds of the sons of Labayu, who gave the lands of the kings to the Apiru, end quote. Another king says of the, of the first guy, the guy who made those accusations, that he is the natural heir of Labayu. Quote, Labayu, who used to take our cities, is dead. But Abdiheba is another Labayu, and he seizes our cities, end quote. So it's kind of like the way everyone refers to each other as Nazis um, on both sides of a conflict. That's sort of how the reputation that Labayu had. And if we analyze these comparisons, they also give us an idea of why Labayu and his sons were considered traitors. It's not just because they double-crossed their enemies. I mean, everyone did that. See, the aristocracy in all these cities and the pharaoh himself distrusted the Apiru deeply. They were a group of nomads. They were looked down upon and feared by all sedentary leaders in the region. It's the same hatred states today have for terrorist organizations. Modern states and their predecessors, kingdoms, always despised and felt threatened by alternative non-state power structures. Also, they would kill you and take your money, so, you know, understandably so. Therefore, cooperating with them has always been seen as immoral. But nonetheless, there have always been states and kingdoms that use these taboo actors for their geopolitical purposes. That's why Labayu cooperated with the Apiru when it suited them, later on denying it. Kind of like the way today Qatar and Iran are state sponsors of terrorism. The game has really changed very little. Another element of Labayu's supposed treachery against the Egyptians involved that they had potential spies employed against the pharaoh. We don't know too much about this, but there are clues in the Amarna letter, and they're fascinating. Notable in this regard is a shadowy figure called Milkilu. He was the mayor of the city of Gazru. At first, the Egyptians deeply trusted this individual. One Amarna tablet from the pharaoh reads as follows, quote, To Milkilu, the ruler of Gazru, thus the king, he herewith dispatches to you this tablet, saying to you, he herewith sends to you, Hanya, the stable overseer of the archers, along with everything for the acquisition of beautiful female cupbearers, silver, gold, linen garments, all sorts of precious stones, an ebony chair, fine things, total value of 160 diba, total 40 female cupbearers, 40 shekels of silver is the price of a female cupbearer. Send extremely beautiful female cupbearers with no defect, so the king your lord will tell you, this is excellent, in accordance with the order he sent to you, end quote. So, you can tell that Milkilu was very much beloved of the pharaoh. The pharaoh did not send these kind of gifts to just everyone. 
But even though he was getting all this loot from Egypt, Milkilu was not on the level. Balur, the Jezreel Valley warlord, reported to the pharaoh that, quote, the messenger of Milkilu does not move from the two sons of Labayu, end quote. He also speculated that they are, quote, trying to cause the loss of the land of the king, end quote. Now, it doesn't appear that Milkilu aided the sons of Labayu directly. Instead, their relationship was limited to sharing intelligence. Assuming that the story is true and they weren't just someone trying to undermine Milkilu because he got all the best-looking cupbearers. Between this and their productive relationship with the Apiru, it seems like the House of Labayu excelled at underhanded machinations. They seem to have an intelligence ring. They seem to be working with the Apiru. Everything was kosher in their battle against Egyptian domination. Moving on from Labayu, we get to the moment we've all been waiting for. Jerusalem enters our story for the first time. And it's about time my hometown gets a shout-out. The Amarna letters may be the city's first mention in surviving records. Now, there are ancient texts from the Middle Kingdom of Egypt, the execration texts written in the 19th century BCE, and they refer to a town named Urusalimu that may or may not be Jerusalem. But in the Amarna letters 500 years later, we are introduced to the city, and there's no question that what they're talking about is the Jerusalem we know and love. We're introduced to it through the letters of one Abdi Heba, and that was the chieftain running the town. We can learn a little bit about the ethnic roots of the city from his name. The origins of his name are Hurian. If you remember, those are the ethnic king of the Mitanni people. And the name means the servant of Hebat. Hebat was a Hurian goddess. So that's his likely ethnic origin, although that's not conclusive evidence. Sometimes people adopted names from other cultures. In the Bible, we're told that the Jebusites ruled Jerusalem before David took over the city. That may be a Hurrian group, which the Canaanites heavily culturally influenced, and therefore they were somewhat distinctive. We have no reason to assume cultural discontinuity in the city between the era of the Amarna letters and the rise of the King of David, um, but we don't know for sure. Either way, when you think of Jerusalem at this point, don't imagine the proud city on a hill with walls that you probably have in mind. It would have looked very different. It was a tiny settlement of around 1,500 people. It didn't have any fortifications or impressive buildings whatsoever. Here's how Finkelstein and Asherman describe it at this time. They say the king, quote, controlled the highlands from the region of Bethel in the north to the region of Hebron to the south, and an area about 100 square miles wide. In conflict with the neighboring rulers in the northern highlands, like Shechem and the Shephelah, with only eight identified settlements from that era in the region, it's pretty likely the nomadic population outnumbered the passive one. So that's why Jerusalem's kings had to work closely with the Apiru and why the Shem kings did. The Apiru, in many, not only were they militarily potent, in a lot of areas, they outnumbered the sedentary population. And that's important to remember. Now, when we analyze the letters of um, Abdi Heba, we can tell he was the son of local nobility, but not necessarily the scion of a long-standing um, line of kings, the way that Labaya was. 
His rank as a soldier in the Egyptian army indicates that he was likely sent down to Egypt for his education as a glorified hostage of the Pharaoh. And we talked about that habit they had of sending Canaanite nobility down there to be educated for reasons of control and cultural influence. In the first letter from the Jerusalem chieftain, he introduces himself to the world thus, quote, I am not a mayor. I am a soldier for the king, my lord, end quote. Now, this is the symbolism of loyalty, calling yourself a loyal soldier, but it's also likely a reference to the Egyptian habit of giving military positions to the sons of the aristocracy they educated far from home. In another letter, he wrote the following, quote, Consider Jerusalem. This neither my father nor my mother gave to me. The strong hand of the king gave it to me, end quote. It's not clear what that means. It could mean that Egypt chose him despite not having local nobility roots, but we doubt that. Most historians believe he simply says that his primary loyalty is to Egypt and not to Jerusalem, and not to his bloodline. But that may not have been what he actually felt. And like seemingly every freaking letter in the Amarna Corpus, those from Abdi Heba were primarily complaints that enemies were harassing his city, and that he needed aid from Egypt in order to stop that. For the Jerusalem chieftain, his main problem was, no surprise, the Apiru. As he wrote, quote, The king has no lands. Apiru has plundered all the lands of the king. And he asked for the Egyptian archers. So, that's standard stuff. But he also reminded the Egyptians of all the tribute that he paid them, and said that now that he is besieged, quote, I cannot send the caravan to the king, my lord, for your information. As the king has placed his name in Jerusalem forever, he cannot abandon it, the land of Jerusalem. End quote. Now, Abdi Heba's main enemies were people we know very well, aside from the Apiru, obviously. Here is one letter he wrote to the Pharaoh quote, Consider the entire affair. Milkilu and Tagi brought troops against me. May the king know that all the lands are at peace with one another, but I am at war. May the king provide for his land. Consider the lands of Gazru. They have given my enemies food, oil, and other requirements. So may the king provide for archers and send the archers against the men that commit crimes against the king, my lord. If this year there are archers, then the lands and the client kings will belong to the king, my lord. But if there are no archers, the king will have no lands. He ends matters with this startling accusation. This is Milkilu's deed and the sons of Labayu, who have given the land of the king to the Apiru. Consider, O king, my lord, I am in the right. End quote. So as always, it's Labayu and his little spy, Milkilu, behind all of the mess. Despite raging against Labayu for making deals with the Apiru, our friend Abdi Heba would do the same thing not long after. Shuardata, the king of Kela, a city located somewhere between Hebron and Bethlehem, sent the following tablet to the Pharaoh complaining about the Jerusalem chieftain. Quote, Labaya, who used to take our towns, is dead. And now another Labaya is Abdi Heba, and he seizes our town. So may the king take cognizance of his servant because of this deed. End quote. Now, we're not sure what the destiny of Abdi Heba was, but it appears that he made too many enemies. He reported to Egypt in one of his last missives, quote, I am at war, 
as far as the land of Seru, and as far as Ginti Colonel. All the mayors are at peace, but I am at war. I am treated like an Apiru, and I do not visit the king because I am at war. I am situated like a ship at sea, end quote. In desperation, he asked to be rescued by Egypt, quote, If there are no archers this year, may the king send commissioners to get me along with my brothers, and then we will die beside the king, end quote. Considering the increasing desperation of his message, we can imagine that Abdi Heba ended up dead or in exile. My guess is dead, because Egypt had its own internal problems, and probably wasn't too worried about the tiny and irrelevant village of Jerusalem. Now, that very indifference that may have doomed the king of Jerusalem was one of the things that shaped the future of the region. The fierce independence of the residents there was crucial to the emergence of the Israelites in future times. Indeed, Finkelstein and Silberman see parallels between the politics of this period and those of the King David era. Quote, Note the similarity between the ragtag Apiru groups that threatened Abdi Heba and the biblical tales of the outlaw chief of David and his band of mighty men roaming the Hebron hills in the Judean desert. But whether or not David conquered Jerusalem in a daring Apiru raid like the one described in the books of Samuel, it seems clear that the dynasty he established represented a change in rulers, but hardly a dramatic change in how the highlands were governed. End quote. As we can see from the relevant Amarna letters, the Egyptians had little control over the area at this time. The mayors, chieftains, and local kings sparred in a web of intrigue, warfare, and betrayal straight out of Game of Thrones. And because they had no major interests there, the Egyptians were less involved than they were in those power struggles that we talked about in Lebanon in previous episodes. The political price of this was instability. But we can also see that the rivalry between the northern and southern hills in the center of Israel was already an issue here. You can see that in the rivalry between Abdi Heba and Labayu. We will see that again in the strife between Judah and Israel. But overall, these splits and this lack of central authority meant that Egyptian influence was weaker there than elsewhere. They couldn't co-opt the local rulers, and even if they could, the local rulers were at odds with each other and could not control the Apirud. As we'll see in the next few episodes, that would have world-changing consequences as the Israelite religion emerged in the Judean hills. And with that, please rate us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, but only if you're going to give us five stars. Otherwise, send me an angry email, or a nice one, or questions at history landisrael at gmail.com that's historylandisrael at gmail.com remember to follow us on facebook and on twitter and see you on the history of the land of israel podcast next time